Hello, welcome to Full Circle with Garland. I'm a leader in the DEI space and have spent 20 years of my career in human resources. I've been having meaningful conversations about career development with my friends and colleagues, many of whom are rarely heard on stages and podcasts. I am excited to bring you their stories each week. I will be sharing how their diverse backgrounds have shaped their work, the lessons in their career highs and lows, and the importance of recognizing the full circle moments in life. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this week's interview. Welcome to Full Circle with Garland. Today's very special guest is Virginia Ginny Clark. I have had the pleasure of getting to know this wonderful woman, I'd say over the past three, four months. I came across her content on LinkedIn. I started listening to her amazing podcast, Fifth Dimension Leadership, and then I was in a clubhouse room with her, and that's when I knew I have got to get this woman on my podcast. Um, she is, I mean, everything. I feel like there's women that you meet sometimes in this world, and you just think, I know she's, one, she knows her stuff, but two, I know she's been through it, and three, she's just speaking from a place of inspiration, like channeling inspiration. And so every time I, I'm in a room with her, anytime I have an opportunity to listen to her, I, she's one of my, my icons, as you would say, right? Um, and so for me, I feel like it's been such a joy to have her on today. Um, she's got an amazing bio, you know, ex-Google alum. She's worked uh, at quite a few amazing firms, has had an amazing career in talent acquisition and talent development, career development. Um, and so I'm happy to have her on today because she is amazing. Welcome, Ginny. Garland, thank you. You're so sweet to say all that. Really kind. I didn't pay you. No, you didn't. <laughs> Nobody has to pay me because when, when I'm holding you up in the light where you belong, there's no reason for us to even go there. So, You're so sweet. I appreciate you. I appreciate you for being on today. Um, I love having guests like you on because I feel like there's so much um, information that you can share, your own lived experience, along with just what you have, um, I think, customized for yourself in order to create the life you want. I'm all about us trying to create lives that we want, being intentional. So um, I appreciate having you on. So I'm going to jump right in. I start off always asking guests about their upbringing, what shaped them, you know, parents, schooling, like how did you become the person you are today? So tell me more about that. Yeah, I was really fortunate. I had two amazing parents. My mother was from Tuskegee, Alabama, which has a rich um, history in the black community. Her father was um, the son of a slave and, and walked from Georgia to um, Tuskegee to learn under Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver. Um, and so that that was a and my mother's brother, my uncle, was a Tuskegee Airman. So that's a rich sort of foundation in terms of, um, you know, standards of quality and excellence and um, in the face of adversity. Right. So that was my mom. And she became a physical therapist. She was a bit of a trailblazer herself. She had a master's in uh, an undergrad in, in PE, a master's in physical therapy and, and did that. Um, my dad was from San Francisco. Um, and he was a pioneer himself. He was a prison warden. He was with the California Youth Authority and became one of the first uh, black um, leaders and of running some of these major institutions. And so 
between the two of them, and they married later in life. My mom in her mid-30s, my dad in his mid-40s. Um, so that meant that I lost them when I was in my 30s, but um, that their, the loss of their physical presence here spawned my deeper spiritual journey, which I can get to. Um, so I had a, a really lovely upbringing in Riverside, California. I have one brother who's still in Riverside, and he's an attorney, has a lovely family. Um, and I was that rambunctious child. I was curious. I was smart. I was assertive. And my parents nurtured that. You know, there were a few things that um, I was told no to. I mean, trust me, there were boundaries. I said my father was a prison warden. So, <laughs> you know, there, there were rules and boundaries. Um but, you know, in hindsight, it was, I just, I, I had, I had a lot of love and a lot of support and I didn't take it for granted because I had friends in school who I know didn't have that at home. Um, I wanted to be a veterinarian. So I went off to university of California at Davis and, um, I'd actually taken classes at UC Riverside while I was still in high school and transferred to Davis. And I got there and I, I was like, you know what? Animal science is not for me. I made a mistake. Never mind. Um, puppies and kittens sounded great. Um, sides of beef and, and flipping sheep, not so much. So I majored in French linguistics and, um, was very active on campus. Um, you know, took leadership roles, working the chancellor's office, that sort of thing. And then when I graduated, I became a college recruiter for the university of California. Um, and after that moved to Chicago for grad school and kind of the rest, that's where my career started to really take off. Yeah. So in those formative years, if you look back on, you know, traits that you've had, competencies that you just natural abilities that you built upon, how do those show up for you today? Yeah, well, so funny. It's, you know, it's um, you always kind of resent having a sibling sometimes. Right? I only had one. So um, and my brother and I are completely different. You know, I was that the, the child who came out early. I was a couple weeks early. My brother was a couple weeks late. Um, and I came out screaming, they had to induce labor with him. I mean, it was, you know, it was just so I was that assertive risk-taking child. Um, and a, a natural leader, I don't know if I use that terminology then, but I always had a vision. Let's go this way. Let's do this. Let's try something new. And so I think that served me well. Um, you know, I think my parents, given the generation they were from, <sighs> maybe unintentionally wanted to moderate some of that enthusiasm, knowing that a six foot tall black girl um, probably needed to set some more reasonable expectations for what was possible. But, you know, I went for it most of the time. And my parents also said importantly something that was so profound and that I've said to my son, which is, you don't owe us anything. My parents saved, they were good with their money, they put me and my brother through college, um, and they made it clear that we didn't owe them anything. And they said, we're always here for you. Um, we're, we're your safety net if you need it. We'll give you frank feedback um, and you know give you an opinion, but we want you to be empowered with making the decision and owning the consequences of, of your decisions, which, I mean, that was so forward thinking. <laughs> that was not common in a lot of households. So Yeah, I'd say um, that's forward thinking even today. When yeah, you hear about is. helicoptering parents, I mean, that's huge. Yeah, yeah. My dad did say something once to me. I mean, he, he knew me so well, and both of my parents did. But my dad especially, he was really my coach. And 
I don't, I can't even, from the time I left to go to college until he passed away, he would call me every Sunday morning and, um, and we would talk for the first half hour about business and jobs and all that stuff, leadership, money. And then my mom would come on and we would talk about other stuff, you know, how, um, how's my health? Am I taking care of myself? You know, money, managing money. What, what are you doing? How are you, who are you hanging out with? Those kinds of things. So uh, it was it was wonderful that I had both of them. But, you know, I think it was my dad who said um, there were a couple of things that he told me that were really important. And in college in, or maybe high school, he asked me once, Ginny, why do you get bees? And I said, well, dad, you know, I'm I, I made up something. <laughs> I said, I want to be well-rounded. <laughs> and um, and he said, I know I know you can get A's. And he called me out. He was right. I, I was actually kind of holding back because I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be, you know, the smart, um, always having to, you know, it, it started to feel burdensome for me to have so many things going on that other people didn't have. I was always so conscious of, of the gifts that I was given. So that was an interesting dynamic. Wow. Um, and and it 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 showed up in some ways that you know we can we can cover or not, but it it's one that I've had to really look back on and say why did I feel that need to hold back? Um, and so you know I tell especially young women, don't hold back. You know if you're if you're worried about not being attractive to a man, th- then you're looking at the wrong ones. The right one will find you when you're fully in your power. Um, and it, it took me a while to get to that place of really deeply understanding that, but God knows I certainly am now. Yeah. So you are, I say, known for career mapping. That is, yeah. I think, one of your not only tenets, but just I think how over your career you mm-hmm. have, you know, re- discovered you've got a knack for this, developed a framework around it. So tell me about, you know how you came into this idea of career mapping? Because I think you were calling it that probably before everybody else was calling it that. Um, well, maybe. And, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I feel like I just heard about career mapping maybe four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't, I think, a general term. Now you say career map, people know exactly what it is. Right. Um, and so can you tell me your definition of that? Yeah. And how you created this the framework around it? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I gave you some of the, the, the life experiences so that you could appreciate how I took some chances and I pivoted. I, I didn't pursue veterinary medicine, which I wanted to do from the time I was 12. Um, you know, I went off to, to graduate school and started in financial services after I graduated and pivoted into executive recruiting. And once I became an executive recruiter at Spencer Stewart, one of the things I loved and one of the things I became aware of is that I was a systems thinker. And I hearkened back to the fact that I had studied French linguistics, which are languages or systems. I studied accounting in business school, a, a yet another system. And so I, I liked frameworks. I liked models. I liked structure and order. <laughs> and if you see my home, it's that way. I'm not like, you know, pristine and, you know, plastic covers on the, on the furniture, but I like order because I, that's how my mind operates. And so at Spencer Stewart in particular, what I loved was the rigor that the executive search process um, had and that everyone in the firm honored. And, you know, the training was rigorous. It was consistent. And someone had said to me, one of my mentors in my early years there 
said, you know, if you're not getting the outcome that you want for that search that you're working on, you go back to the very beginning and you start over. And the beginning is the conversation with the client. What are they actually looking for? So that really stuck with me. And the, the, the fact that I had had these, these changes in my careers gave me an appreciation for competencies, which, as you know, is one of my favorite words, one of the most important words in my book, Career Mapping, and something that I think is essential when you're assessing talent. I don't care what level talent. I don't care what level, you know, what, what kind of an organization, what function. It doesn't matter. Competencies reign. And so as I look back on my own career, I realized that that's what I was able to talk about and discern for myself so that I could pivot and make some of those moves. Even though I'd been a college recruiter years earlier, that had little bearing on my consideration to go into one of the world's largest search firms. They actually were looking for people who had other kinds of experiences so that they would have knowledge of other people at the senior level to as candidates and for business development purposes. So they were seeking competencies around business development, competencies around analysis, business acumen, a lot of these things that I had developed. And so somehow rather instinctively, I was able to articulate those things, having sort of deconstructed those elements from the various jobs that I had had in the real estate industry and financial, other financial services up until that point. And a couple of, and, and this kind of goes back to my upbringing. I didn't mention that you, it's probably not too far-fetched to imagine that based on what I told you about my parents, they had a very service orientation. And I can remember being in Chicago in the Equitable Building on Michigan Avenue and um, on the 34th floor in my office and kind of looking down and thinking, you know, there are a lot of people that are never going to have access to a search firm like this and particularly people of color. And I thought, man, I would love to share some of the secrets and some of the the nuggets. They're not secrets, but the some of the foundational elements that people take for granted. Um, and so I started writing this book in 2003. And I left Spencer Stewart in 2009, committed to getting the book published and really wanting to be kind of the Susie Orman, if you will, in the career space. I got some of that done. I got the book published, the Susie Orman piece. Didn't get there, but you know why? And I'm going to, I don't often share this, but I think I wasn't convinced that the Jenny Clark brand was enough. Mm. And as I look back and I remember too, one of the other teachings from my mother, and I, I'm sharing this because I think people sometimes are, um, they don't, they don't take into consideration some of the early learnings that are deep, sort of deeply embedded in the psyche. Um, and so for me, my mom would always say she came for this, you know, this humble upbringing, humility reigned. Um, you don't promote yourself. You don't. And and that played in my mind. You know, it's like you, you see people out there and they're, you know, I want to be fabulous. I want to be seen. I want to be known. And that's never been me. That's not where I'm coming from. Um, so I think that some of that was operative the first go round. Um, fast forward, you know, now I'm at a different stage and age and stage in my career. And I'm real clear about what I want to offer the world. Um, because I, you know, I developed this framework based on having been in a global firm, based on having worked in another global organization and seen leaders. And so that's what I want to share. And that's how I kind of shaped and have continued to tweak 
the career mapping framework that I created. Yeah, I I love what you're saying because I think it is secrets. I mean, I think when you know it and you see it and you do it every day, you think it's common knowledge for everybody. Mm-hmm. But until you speak with someone and then they tell you, like, I never thought about it like that, or I had no idea that's how it worked. And then you you are revealing a secret because it mm-hmm. is something that's not common knowledge. Um, and so I do believe that a lot of the things, I mean, I, I see it myself. It's, you you know, you, you know how, how people move around in organizations. You see, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. And so when you're on the other side and you're like, how is this happening? Um, there's a lot of things happening. Um, mm-hmm. And it is something where you do need to have somebody to explain why certain things are important and how you go about doing it and um, what is it that you should be focusing on. Um, so I, I mean, two, 2000s, like nobody was talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at all. So, I mean, I think, and sometimes timing is everything. I think it is. we know everything now that careers have to be owned Careers have to be driven. You have to pay attention to them. No one's going to pay attention to it for you. Where I don't think that that was the thought process back Mm -mm. then. I think people were still expecting employers to do something for them. Right. Um, Or search firms. And Mm -hmm. search firms. And I think also we've been through a few cycles now, downturns, pandemics, where you realize you can't depend on anybody at this point. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Uh, You need to take the reins and take them off. Well, and, and that's the good news because, and you get this, what we're talking about is creating and not responding and being passive. And that's where, you know, where it dawned on me one day, I would have so many people, white, black, male, female. I'm, most of the candidates back in the day while I was at Spencer Stewart were male, I would say about 75%. And they would call up and say, hey, Jenny, you know, you're going to help me find my next gig. I'm like, no, that's not what I do. And I was saying that not to be rude and dismissive, but to to help them understand that, look, as a firm, we're only going to do maybe 5,000 searches a year. And there are literally millions of opportunities out there, some of which you can create to meet the special set of competencies that you, unique competencies that you have. And who doesn't deserve that? And I think we simply don't feel entitled to choose what it is that we want. And we've told ourselves all these stories about, well, that that kind of job doesn't pay that much. And so you shouldn't do that. Um, or this thing over here isn't, you know, at your level, you've been educated in a different way, you shouldn't do that. You know, that's all bogus. It's you're here to create your own life and do what brings you joy. We didn't come here to suffer. That's right. We did not come here to suffer. Okay. Mm. So I also know one of your tenants is that you believe that DEI is a leadership problem. Um, mm-hmm. I want you to walk me through how you got there. Cause I, I, I've seen it. Uh, so <laughs> I can, we can, we can talk about this for a while, but I yeah. really, I want to hear what you think about why you believe that is a problem. What do you think it's missing or what is the understanding that's not, processed there in terms of why leadership has a big part in this? I came at it. It's something that, I mean, I I think a lot of people would kind of agree. They're not going to actively disagree, but maybe they haven't connected the dots to say it as deliberately as I'm saying it. And, and I have been in a position to connect the dots in a very, um, 
substantial way. <laughs> so let me let me just maybe talk about my time at Google because it it amplified that for me. Um, I was brought in to help lead diversity for the leadership staffing organization that's Google's internal executive search firm, and I started by you know let's what information do we have? What demographic information do we have so that we can figure out who do we already know? How do we need to fortify a database? All of those things. Well. There were 850 spreadsheets. There was no database. Um, they had an applicant tracking system for those other 20,000 people that they hire through their application process. But this was the internal search firm where it is like that firm that I told you about where it's passive, where we're making outbound calls to identify people who fit a very, very specific, sometimes very singular kind of a role, right? Because we were recruiting for the treasurer, the general counsel, the, you know, there was probably only one at that level. And so I got to see the inner workings. And this is what I had done at Spencer Stewart too, in co-founding their diversity practice of what it takes to hire, first of all, to hire anyone, right? What is the process? And that's why I was talking about the process and honoring it, having that methodology that you do honor because it will give you a certain kind of output. But there are all these other levers in there that unless those things are tweaked and honored and maintained, you're gonna end up with a different kind of an outcome. And so part of what I saw was that the way in which talent was assessed was off, right? They, it was not competency-based as I've talked about, which yes. is how I learned the business as an executive yes. recruiter. And this isn't, and again, I'll emphasize, this isn't just at the executive level. I said it before, I think, but competency assessment should be happening. I don't care if you're coming right out of college. That's the basis upon which we should be assessing folks because it's never been proven that hiring on the basis of pedigree, there's some great books out there on that that speak to it, which schools you went to, what your grades were, um, what your SAT scores were, those things don't predict your success in the role. And frankly, I would argue that, you know, they don't even predict that you're smart. They predict that you studied well, that you probably had a great memory. You had access it's, to some coaches. You and had some access, right. The, does education make you smart? I'm not so sure. And smart in what way, right? So I think that's sort of a, a, a misunderstanding about what good looks like. And from a diversity standpoint, we know that, Let's just pick black people as a cohort of color. Um, we know that we haven't had access to the same opportunities from education all the way through jobs. However, some of us have made it through, have gotten all the edge, not just the education, the experience, the exposure, the foundational elements. And I would argue that very often we have developed certain other sort of non-tangible EQ yes. um, by virtue of being the only one very often, the one for whom less was expected, um, that has given us that much, that much more capability and skill. So kind of putting that aside for just a minute in terms of, you know, what is this hiring system saying to us? Because that is what's feeding the representation in an organization that everybody's crying for now. Oh, we need black people, you know, since George Floyd was killed. Everybody's waking up to, oh, there are all these disparities. Oh my God, am I biased? Oh, what does this mean? Um, 
So I looked at that. And then the other role, uh, I had two other roles while I was at Google simultaneously. One was I was asked to create their internal mobility program for their senior leaders. And that was based on career mapping. I did that. And, you know, one of the first questions I would ask these senior leaders is, what do you want? They're like, uh, I don't know. I've been doing this for the last 10 years. Okay, but let's let's deconstruct what you what your competencies are. And not just look at all the open roles that you might be suitable for, but what do you want? So that if if it's not open right now, because we're only talking about one company, a big company, but only one company, let's see if we can't create something for you. So that was, and we had 500 people come through that in the four years that I was there and a nearly 70% retention rate. Uh, So I'm really proud of that. What that did though, is it gave me insight into leaders in, in this, you know, august organization. Everybody thinks Google is this amazing organization, and it is. But I noticed that some of the leaders were, had been, hey, they had become leaders by default. Their tenure um, made them kind of bump them along for a hyper growth company. You know, you just all hands on deck. Who, who's ever sitting in the, the corner seat? Well, you know, build out that, those hundred people beneath you and just keep going, riding the wave. And so I don't think that the expectation for demonstrating leadership competencies was always set. And these individuals were held accountable for that. And instead, you know, it was, well, how, how well did you perform? Did you hit your OKRs? Um, and not even necessarily paying attention to, you know, what is the composition of your team? Do you have an inclusive team? Because we know it's been proven for decades now that the more diverse your team, the better the likely the financial performance is going to be. Right. Um, so these were some of the dots that I started connecting. And like, well, these leaders aren't, they, they aren't tuned in to the talent equation, much less the hiring equation. And they're defaulted to what I think a lot of companies have defaulted to, which is, you know, we're going to hire, we're comfortable with people who are more like us. And ideally people that we know, and to the extent we don't know them, then we'll kind of go on pedigree because that seems logical. And in your head, it's logical, but I can tell you, it simply isn't true, right? The pedigree doesn't guarantee anything. And there are no guarantees because you're talking about people. So there's, you're not going to get perfection. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but we what we do know, I know for certain, is that honoring those same criteria are going to get you the same as what you've always had. So if you're looking for diversity, then stop, then stop behaving the way you've always been behaving and start expecting different behaviors from your senior most leaders. So that's how I get to, I took you kind of the long way around, but that's how I get to DEI is a leadership issue. Full stop. Full stop. No, I can totally see how you're putting that together because I do see that, um, you know, it's like you're saying, how you become a leader is sometimes not very much based on competencies. I, I call it the, you know, just because you're an amazing athlete doesn't mean you're going to be a great coach, right? Just That's because true. you know how to put it, put, put them in there and you're scoring and you're awesome. Doesn't mean now you get to coach the, the rest of the team uh, because oftentimes you being a superstar by yourself doesn't mean you know how to make other superstars. Um, you've created something within your own way of making this work for you. Um, and you can't necessarily sometimes teach that to the next person. If anything, you need to be looking at them and finding out what their strengths are and harnessing them 
instead of trying to clone yourself through other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, and I don't think oftentimes leaders know that that is what it means to be a leader. It also means to be a servant. It's not about you. It's not about you. Yeah. And, you know, wherever you go, you are, is what I tell my son sometimes, right? It's whatever baggage, whatever fears, anxieties, pressures, insecurities you have as a person, and we all have them, we all do, to varying degrees. Leaders have them too, but that's going to show up in some way among the people, for the people whom you're leading. We've seen that at the highest levels of our government recently. Yes. So, um so yeah, that whole leadership thing, I think, needs to be reevaluated. What does it mean to be a leader? And select companies need to be selecting people on the basis of yes, domain expertise, and leadership competencies that have been demonstrated and get over just this, you know, well, they've done this, they've had these titles, therefore they should be good. They could have not done it well. Right. That's what I always tell people. I'm like, you know, the fact that somebody did something doesn't mean that they're competent. I know plenty of people who have lots of tenure and they're not that competent. Yeah, that is definitely true. At least in certain Uh, areas. In certain areas. I mean, I do think that there are. um, I think and then I think what leadership is is changing. I think the old guard of what leadership was um, and we can talk about this is where I think we should talk about your fifth dimensional leadership and just kind of the, the new wave of transformation, a spiritual element, being yeah. able to really be more vulnerable, be more, like you said, emotional intelligence, yeah. having more, you know, just presence, being mm-hmm. present. Um, right. I think in our, in our current climate, this is what's being called forth, not just from, mm. from everyone, but I think leaders in particular, um, so let's talk about fifth dimensional leadership because I, sure. that's when I listened to your podcast and I was like, Thank oh you. my gosh, she's bringing the woo. She's bringing the <laughs> woo to leadership. Um, so that's what I'm excited about. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you how it even started. I, I did a lot of speaking when I was at Google. Um, word spread that I had this, this stick around fifth, um, career mapping. And a lot of employee resource groups and other functional groups would invite me to speak. And I was speaking to a group of women in, uh, in Austin with Google. And they, um, one of the women stood up and said, when are you going to do a podcast during the Q&A? And I said, when you help me produce it. And she followed up. And starting in last January, a year ago, um, she and a couple of other people volunteered to help me think it through every Sunday for an hour. And come July, we got it going. So it was, you know, it wasn't on my radar, but it was a um, a function of what the, the market wanted. So, yeah. And then the fifth dimensional leadership part kind of emerged because what I started thinking about was what matters to me? And I, I mentioned in passing that I've been on a very deliberate spiritual journey that was sparked by my father's passing um, back in the 90s. I was just, I was devastated. I was devastated when my mother passed as well, but I, I had a different understanding about death for myself and for my family. Um, having been on that journey with, um, with Kurt Hill, who I consider to be my kind of guru in Chicago. Um, and so as I thought about it, 
you know, knowing yourself is essential. That is the first dimension. Um, speaking your truth, I found as a practical matter that a lot of leaders really weren't good at giving feedback, as an example. They, they didn't have language to communicate the fullness of what a subordinate or a team member or a collaborator really needed to hear. Um, so speaking your truth is the second one. Um, the third one is inspiring love. And that one, you know, people don't think about love in the workplace, but it, it's It's heart-centered work, right? It, it is heart-centered. Feel, feel, yeah. love, have compassion, right? Um, the fourth one is, um, I always get the fourth and fifth, I always get them out of order, but it's activate, no, the fifth one is activate mastery. Expand consciousness is the fourth. And then activate your mastery. And the consciousness piece is that that is kind of that woo um, that some people think about it. But one of my favorite references when I think of consciousness is to talk about Steve Jobs. Um, yeah. Because I'm convinced that he was channeling. You know, he was he had transcended cognition to come up with. He saw something that was beyond just, you know, he didn't sit there pen and paper just trying to think. He would have blown a fuse it was coming to him. He opened up other channels and it was downloading. And I think we heard him make reference to that um, later in his career. So that consciousness thing to me is really, really important because I actually do believe that that is going to be what the future is going to bring. It's can you transcend thought? And I, I'm, I'm not conflating that at all with artificial intelligence or machine learning or any of these other technologies it's my hope and belief that the the capabilities of this of our humanity of our humanness are unique in that we are compassionate at the same time they go hand in hand and they're transcendent and the and not only they they go hand in hand they're they're integral parts of one another the the capacity to love combined with the capacity to um transcend your ego to transcend your um cognitive mind to connect to the mainframe, the true, the true cloud, right? I mean, yes. uh, think of it that way. So yes. that's, that's how Plugging I think about in. leadership. Plugging in. It's bigger Plugging than in. you. It's bigger yeah. than you. I uh, equate meditation to like you charging up yourself every day yeah. and then you can go out and, and really pay attention to what's happening. But if you're fried and you're tired and you haven't plugged in, then how, how are you going to, know what's even happening around you you're running on fumes you're you're not plugged in and that's why i get up every morning usually around between four and five i just wake up it's kind of annoying on the weekends but uh yeah that's why i meditate that's how i try to reconnect with uh the mainframe so to yeah. speak yeah yeah so when you talk about expanding consciousness in work right what does that look like so that i think bring it back to something that people I think can really understand. What does consciousness mean in a situation where you're either a leader or you're someone who you're trying to figure out, okay, what am I, what am I supposed to be doing? What am I yeah. supposed to be focusing on? What does that look like? I, you know, I guess I, I only put it in, in the context of how I've tried to manage it. Right. Cause I think everybody has a unique way of tapping in and mm -hmm. knowing that they are tapped in or not. 
And I think most people are not. <laughs> I think we've kind of got a lot of uh, walking wounded, you know, people that are completely stressed out, that are uh, believing that this is a meritocracy and that the harder they work, the better their lives will be. And then one day they wake up and they're like, wow, I'm not happy. So to me, the consciousness is, is frankly being aware, having an awareness almost in every moment that you're loved, that there's goodness in the world. And trust me, I know it's hard. It's, I, it's aspirational. I don't know too many people, maybe the Dalai Lama, uh, maybe Gandhi, um, you know, maybe some of these spiritual um, um, icons, if you will, were able to maintain that steady state of being. It's it's a, state, it's a state of being. And, yeah. and I, I make a big distinction between doing and being. Now, yes, we're talking about meditating, which is a doing, but we have to do in order to open up the portal so that we can simply be and be connected to something that's bigger than ourselves. Um, so that's the best way I can really describe it. It's a state of being. It's a, it's a, you know, what the words that are starting to seep in to the corporate, um, you know, nomenclature is mindfulness, mm-hmm. right? Well-being. We're starting, we're getting closer. That's good. I'll take those. Those are good, nice, soft terms, right? Yoga is something that everybody is doing and we're trying to get that mindfulness, um, so it's akin to that. I'm I'm trying to take it up a couple notches to a much more deliberate, expansive state of being, not just when you take a mindfulness class or have a yoga class, but let's why can't we be like this all the time? That's that's true. And then activating mastery. So what does mastery mean? Because I think people think about it means, you know, like you're you're you've gotten well. When you hear master in terms of means, I'm perfect at it. I got it. I can do it better than anybody else. But I don't mm-hmm. think that's what you mean when you say master. No, it's so it's it not what I mean. Yeah, it's it's again, um, yeah. When when you were talking, I was thinking I have a, a recent article with Serena on the cover of Fast Company, right? And greatest of all time, right? That's that's a level of mastery that I I, I certainly am not going to achieve that in in that realm that she's in. But I think it's, it's really self mastery that you're going for. It's knowing who you are and realizing that there's, there's never a there, there isn't a final destination, but there is the aspiration and the intention that you are going to be as good as you can be in every moment. You're going to exude love. You're going to be patient. You're going to be kind. You're going to think about, and I know this sounds, and trust me, I'm considered a hard ass by many, um, but, and I've softened <laughs> in my day, but I, I do believe that that self mastery is really important. So it starts with self-awareness. It starts with that, right? It's that know yourself. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about as the first dimension. Know yourself. Who are you? Not in terms of not even, you know, your parents, but who are you when you stand and look into the mirror? And I had that moment. I neglected to mention that I was probably 12 and I had one of those white um, vanities with the white mirror and the Mm -hmm. white bench. And I stared into the mirror one day and I remember audibly asking myself, who am I? And it was a sort of Alice in Wonderland moment where. I'd something I'd something clicked for me and I knew that there was more to me than my body. 
and that there was something else that I was connected to. And I think if more of us give ourselves permission to explore that, we'll find a much different way of looking at the world and imagine what that means for an organization if you have more and more people coming in who have that awareness of self that they can bring for the benefit of the organization, how the interactions would change, would be a lot more meaningful, a lot more kind, a lot more grounded. Um, so yeah, that's, so, that's you know, what I'm mastery ask, means to me. I'm going to ask you about pandemic because when you're talking and I'm hearing you say, you know, being more intentional, you know, having an opportunity to look at yourself. And I think that's the stillness and this quiet that we're in um, is not, not anything any of us could one have predicted would have been coming, but two, right. now that we're in it, um, you know, some people are in love with this time. Some mm -hmm. people are struggling in this time. What mm -hmm. do you have to say for both, both sides of that? Like if you're, if you're having a tough time, what are those things that you need to be digging a little deeper to see or focusing on or just what you think yeah. about that in general? Well, fundamentally, I believe that everything happens for a reason, um, no matter how heinous and awful or how beautiful, um, you know, we, it, we, and we've, as I often tell myself, I brought this to myself for a reason. I needed to learn something about it. And I think as an entire civilization, human civilization, we needed and still need to learn something about ourselves. We've been forced to go within, stay at home, go within. That's not a coincidence. And so I, I think it's an opportunity for people to, to do that. I think that's what, if, if you believe in God, if you believe in Allah, if you believe in a, a, the universe or source, whatever language, um, I happen to believe that that's why it's happening. And, and so I, you know, I urge people to try to say, as opposed to feeling like you're a victim to these things that are happening around you, how did you contribute to this? Right? We're all experiencing it. And I don't think we're being punished. I think we're being shown another way. And it's, it's my vision that we're going to open up into something really different. I have no idea what it is. I don't know. But it's, I, it's, um, I, I just feel it, that it's going to be heart-centered, to use your, your term, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to call out a whole nother way of us treating one another. Yeah. That's my vision. Same, same. That's why I started my podcast, because I was like, we need to be expanding this conversation further, you know, getting yeah. it out to more people, um, and not necessarily feeling like, you know, you're alone in whatever it is that you're doing. Um, we're never we're all, alone. We're never alone. No. No. No, there's always, and I have to remind myself um, often, you know, when I'm, something's going wrong and I'm fiercely independent. Um, but in my meditation, part of what I try to do is to say, you know, guide me, surrender, fall back, let that cognitive egoic mind fall back and let in some of the other forces that are there that are conspiring to support me. How about that? <laughs> the universe has your back always. It always does. Yes, it does. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to, I have one more question and I think this one is more because um, I see it all the time. And given that you were working 
to help internal mobility, helping people mm -hmm. move into their next opportunity. What are the things that you see that people of color or women either aren't doing enough of or don't understand in terms of how to move and advance their careers? <sighs> yeah, that's that's loaded, I guess. I mean, and this is from say, the, I, I would say more so like, you know, you had a sample size of a lot of, I mean, 500 people moving them. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of, from, from a data research mm -hmm. perspective, that's a good data set to yeah. say, okay, if I wasn't in some capacity focused in helping these people to be either intentional about determining what their competencies are, making sure that they are in front of the right people who can even see and know that they have these competencies and creating those opportunities so that they can thrive and, you know, show up in the ways they need to. Like, I see that because I'm, I'm similar to you in terms of like, let's look at the framework. Let's look at the system. Like what's broken, what's not working here. Um, and so where are those gaps or deficits or the things that the levers, right. In the, yeah. in the cog that if they don't click together, you, you just can't, through or move through. Mm -hmm. um, and you're asking specifically about uh, people of color, women and people uh, and of color. Women. I said underrepresented because I think that's where folks. that's where you know they you, you set up these programs because we want to see the ranks yeah. change. We want to mm -hmm. see reflection and representation of women and people of color in the leadership roles sure. because what we know is people hire people who they have a relationship with. So you hire more women, you're going to see more women. You hire more That's people right. of color, you're going to see more people of color. That's right. Um, and so if we want to have leaders, the next gen leaders be reflective of not only our organizations, of the you know, locations that we are in, mm -hmm. uh, come up with the next idea, come up with the next innovation, um, we can't do that if it's it's the white male guard. We just can't. Um, in the same ways that I think when you have a diverse team of people, right? right? So yep. everyone's trying to now, I think, run and find leaders, right? Where are the black and brown leaders? Where are the women? Uh, we want to put them on the board. We want to put them, you know, in all of these places. And it's like, what were those things that were keeping them out? So much of it is what I described before. It's the the biased system and fundamental beliefs. And I saw this early in my career where people would kind of look at me and yes, I went to Kellogg and I, you know, dressed the part, spoke the part, all those things, but I wasn't given the same opportunities as my white male colleagues. Um, so there's, there's bias. We know that. There's a, it's, it's, you think about black folks and what we've been through for the last 400 years in this country. And we have been told that we're not good enough for multiple generations. And so we have some healing to do in our own constitution at the, to the depths of our souls so that we not only believe, but we know that we are good enough and sometimes better than. Um, and we need to forgive. We need to, we, it doesn't help us to be angry. It, it weakens us. 
right? If we're angry and resentful and pushing against. So that's part of it, um, part of what we need to do. And then the system needs to really open up and recognize that there are frameworks that allow for a much more um, equitable and objective way of assessing talent. That needs to happen. Okay. Um, and then I think, again, just in terms of how we operate, how individuals navigate, it's, um, you know, don't, don't think this is a meritocracy. And make sure that you are building um, sort of a, a five-dimensional <laughs> um, sphere of people to support you and who can attest to your capabilities, who are committed to helping you grow and expand your capabilities and competencies. So it's not just other Black people. Um, it's majority males, females, whatever, you know, gender, um, it's different levels. I know folks that are 25 years old who are my friends and in my, you know, in my sphere, and I derive a lot of insight from them. So make sure that you're looking at a meta level of what are the big trends in, um, in going on in the world that are going to impact the company all the way down to, you know, what is your assistant doing if you have an assistant? You know, um, what is the, what is the janitor doing? What are the dynamics? What is it? Again, it's drawing upon compassion and seeing people as people and really looking to solve problems in a way that serves not just your own purposes, but the greater good. Okay. So now we're going to start to wrap up. I want people to know about all the wonderful things that you're doing. So let's talk about your services what sure. do you want people to know about the Ginny Clark experience, um, <laughs> what you do, how you work, why they need to reach out to you? Oh, you're so sweet. Um, well, one of my first, well, the, the podcast is is a labor of love. And so I'm really enjoying that and being able to feature leaders from all over the world, all backgrounds, all functions. Um, so that's one thing that I'm going to keep doing, seeking sponsorship for that. Um I'm also really committed to building an app, something I started to try to do about 10 years ago when the book came out. Um, It's going to be around career mapping and some of the elements of that. And so I'm talking to some really, really smart people, some of whom I got to meet through my time at Google, uh, about the best way to activate that. So it can really help people understand how this all works and that they can, because it's all about, I'm I'm a believer in teach people how to fish, right? And, and so that's really the, the thinking behind the app. And then I do a lot of speaking and I've been working on my keynote career with a wonderful coach for the last year. Um, so I speak on topics like leadership um, to other big organizations and uh, DEI uh, through a talent lens um, and career mapping. Those are really the three main topics. And then I consult to companies on things like leadership assessment and like something that I referenced early on, this is the building out of the infrastructure of talent acquisition, executive recruiting um, activities, and how to build better, more diverse pipelines of talent. I'm not doing executive recruiting. I'm not doing search work, but I'm rolling my sleeves up with these companies and helping them understand what I think is one of those primary issues that says, y- y'all are, your system is broken. And that's part of the problem. It's part because the supply is not as much of the problem as people say it is. It's the system. Correct. Okay. So So that's where you can find me. LinkedIn, you know, Instagram. You can find me. We can find you on Instagram, JinnyClark.com. We'll put all of this in the show notes. So before we wrap up, I ask guests two things. One is to fill in the blank. 
inclusion and equity drive my work? Because I know that we will be a better world because of it. What does life look like coming full circle to you? Does life look like coming full circle? Um, I, I think I'm living it right now. I'm, I'm at this sort of last phase of my career. Probably got another 35 years on the planet. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm just so aware and so grateful for all the experiences that I've lived so far. And I'm ready to leverage that awareness for the benefit of other people. And that feels amazing to me. Um, and I'm just, I have no fear. I'm, I'm not afraid of anything. And that to me is just glorious. That is glorious. No fear yeah. going for no. it. I'm, yeah, that's fantastic. Okay. Well, I, well, I mean, maybe you. there's little doubts from time to time, but well, no, doubts, no big fear. We, we brush are, those off. Doubts are um, telling you don't. It's just telling you to wait, but that's not a fear, right? Thank you. I like that. Yeah. Doubts are don't. It's just kind of like, hold on. Just, like, think about it a little more. Pay attention. Just hold on. Hold on. Something's coming. Just hold. That's right. Uh, but that doesn't mean you're scared. It just means you're just, oh, let's hold on. Um, I love it. This has been so good. I appreciate you. Everyone needs to listen to your podcast. They need to you. get your book. They need to find you. Um, I am excited for you. I know you're going to be we're not going to be able to find you after this. You're going to have an agent. Um, so Somebody fantastic. told me to get one. Yeah. Garland, thank you. You are a delight. You're, you just inspire so many. You're just a joy and such positive energy. Thank you for bringing it to the world, my dear. Thank you. Thank you. What a great conversation with Ginny Clark. I enjoyed her so much. I think the one thing that she said that I will be quoting you are here to create your own life. We did not come here to suffer. Uh, I think so much of when we think about work sounds like it's got to be this labor intensive, toiling, horrible thing. And I think when you really understand that work is about you bringing your competencies, your gifts, your talents, and really sharing that with the world, um, work takes on a whole different meaning. And so what I enjoyed about our conversation is she talked so much about um, creating and designing your life and how you can use your work to do that. Uh, the thing that I think worked for me with her conversation was we went over one, of course, competencies and the importance of those and figuring out what your competencies are so that you're really able to articulate how the work that you do is enhanced by your competencies. When you look at uh, going for different positions, when you look at your existing work that you do, when you look at the next role that's ahead for you, um, knowing your competencies, and even if you're continuing to grow them or just learn new ones, I think it's huge to be able to determine what those competencies are so that you can, again, have come to a place of, uh, as she says, um, activating self-mastery, like you know what it is that you can do. Um, and the first way that you know what you can do is first you have to know yourself um, and going through that process. So huge, huge, I'd say uh, just awareness there. Um, another thing that she said was, if you're not basing your hiring and selection on competencies and instead you're looking at pedigree 
familiarity based on proximity, homogeneity, you're totally missing the mark. Um, and I do feel like so much of how we select people for opportunities um, is not sometimes competency-based. We are looking at this person went to a specific school, they have certain GPA, they have a certain SAT score, um, they may, you know, have certain, uh, I'd say, social markers that we uh, say are important. And so if we are only looking at those things and not looking at competency, we're sometimes making decisions from a place of familiarity and not necessarily from a place of skills, knowledge, and abilities, which are what you look at when you're looking at someone's performance. So huge, huge thing there. Um, especially if you're a hiring manager, if you're you know looking for somebody, or if you yourself now need to realize, okay, how do I need to uh, show my skills when I am out there, think about your competencies, think about what you need to be, you know, sharing so that people can see you as such. Um, what she said, thirdly, I think if you didn't listen closely, you may have missed it. What she said specifically about women and people of color is that we have developed other skills and competencies that come with being the only um, she called them kind of emotional intelligence competencies. And I think we never really talk about how that can be something that is a superpower. Uh, I can say this myself as someone who has been an only in a lot of situations, uh, my heightened ability to read a room and to see what's happening without saying a word and just really paying attention comes from being an only. Uh, when you're the only one in the room, you're not the first to speak very often. You're very much always kind of looking around at the scenario and the situation before speaking up. Um, you're often assessing things a lot. Um, it may come with you just trying to understand how this group of people, this culture, this um, organization works. And so by you taking the time to do that, it becomes a skill set uh, and People may not think of it in that way, but um, it is. And so when you think about how you may be an only, what other skills are you developing? Um, some people may see that as, you know, oh, you know, because you're the only, you have to do all these other things. Yes, that might be true, but I think there is a competency there and there is a uh, ability to listen and read into um what's happening in a room that I, I think is often missed. And so don't ever discount that and discount some of the other skills that you're learning because you are an only. So that's my takeaway from this week. Um, so many good things that she said. Um, the idea of driving and owning your career, I think is kind of a staple thing now. And if that's a new concept to you, uh, you know, it's something that you need to be aware of that you've got to make it happen for yourself. And I think she did an amazing job of explaining to us why that was important and why uh, leaders have such a big role to play in moving the needle for DEI. Thank you. And uh, can't wait to have you guys continue to listen. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend. You can find me on Instagram at Full Circle with Garland. And if you'd like to be a guest, go to garlandfuller.com. 
thank you for listening and sharing your time with me. I hope this next week helps you to recognize the full circles in your own life. Bye-bye.